This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss Medicare fraud, specifically billing fraud, or more innocuously termed improper billing, in the Medicare home health care space. With me to discuss the topic is Cheryl Mason, a D.C.-based health policy consultant in post-acute care. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you for your time. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to see you. On background, likely the largest ongoing financial fraud committed in the U.S. is in the Medicare program. Improper billing or payments are estimated at approximately 50 to $60 billion annually, or approximately 10% of annual Medicare spending. Most recently, or this past May, the Center for Public Integrity concluded between 07 and 11, Medicare Advantage plans that serve about one-third of Medicare beneficiaries netted $70 billion in so-called improper billing. Likely the most infamous example of Medicare billing fraud involved the hospital chain Columbia HCA, whose CEO at the time, Rick Scott, is currently the Florida governor. In 2001, the company paid over $1.7 billion in criminal and civil penalties. Billing fraud is committed in numerous ways, from unnecessary or never performed procedures to upcoding or coding the patient's medical condition as more serious than it actually is, to recruiting the homeless to serve as fake patients. In home health, a 2012 Office of the Inspector General study concluded approximately one in four home health agencies had quote-unquote unusually high billing. Again, with me to discuss Medicare fraud in home health care is Cheryl Mason. Ms. Mason's bio is posted on the website. So with that, Cheryl, let me ask uh, first briefly, uh, what is home health care? Sure. Home health care is provided to people who are homebound and requires a skilled health care service, such as skilled nursing, physical speech, or occupational therapy. And um, it is, there are about, oh, I would say about 13, between 12 and 13,000 home health agencies right now. Medicare spend is about $18 billion a year. Um, and their Medicare margins, which doesn't translate directly to EBITDA, but is the way the government measures whether or not the payment methodology is effective, their margins are around 14.4%, which relative to other healthcare providers is, is very high. So, um, Could you say it's 14% profit? Um, well, basically what they do, it's, uh, I, I don't want to go too deeply into the calculation, but basically what they do is they take the total revenue and subtract allowable costs. And it's based on cost report data. So, and the government, uh, the OIG actually tends to believe that costs are overstated. So it's likely that the margins are actually even higher. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's go to uh, the extent of the problem. Uh, the recently retired director of Medicare at CMS, John Blum, stated last year in a congressional testimony, quote-unquote, our work with law enforcement has shown us that there is tremendous fraud going on, particularly in home health. So to what extent is there fraud or improper billing uh, going on or being committed in home health? Sure. Well, I think to understand that, it's important to understand the payment mechanism because we have to understand how it works if we understand how it's, how it's gained. 
or exploited. Uh, basically, home health agencies are reimbursed for 60-day episodes of care, and as long as they provide five or more visits uh, during that episode, they get the full episode payment. And payments range anywhere from, and I'm just doing the back of the cocktail napkin here, from about $2,000 for an episode up to more than $7,000. And the amount that the agency gets paid is driven by three different factors. One, the degree of functional impairment of the person or how much assistance they need with bathing, dressing, feeding, that sort of thing. Two, the degree of clinical complexity. So it's very important how many diagnosis codes, how they relate and how severe they are. And three, based on the volume of therapy services provided. So if you provide fewer than five therapy visits, basically you don't get uh, you know reimbursed for that. But if you go over 20, therapy visits in a 60-day period, you would be up around that probably that $7,000 mark as far as reimbursement is concerned. So there's a perverse incentive to upcode as far as diagnoses are concerned, and also a perverse incentive to overutilize therapy, whether those visits are being provided or not. Um, so, so that's how it works. And the reason, you know, and I also want to preface this by saying, I spent a fair amount of time in my career as a home health agency administrator, and so I know perfectly well that it's very possible to run a home health agency honestly, completely in compliance with the rules, and still do very well. So I don't want to think that we're, we're tarring everyone with the same, you know, the same brush. But because the care is provided in a dispersed setting, right, um, because there are low barriers to entry for home health, right, that has led to a proliferation of providers. Um, and uh, over the past, I would say over the past decade, the number of home health agencies has more than doubled. And, uh, and particularly in specific geographic service areas that have historically been problematic, um, particularly Texas, uh, Florida, California, Oklahoma, um, and uh, Michigan, actually. So, um, so those are some of the reasons why it sort of lends itself to that, uh, to the fraud and abuse, and historically has been such an issue. The other thing I would bring up is that we have uh, basically a pay and chase payment system here, where by statute, Medicare is required to pay claims within a certain period of time of their being submitted if they look clean at the, at the outset. Um, and, uh, and so what happens then is providers get paid and then the government audits afterward and then they find that the claims might have been improper and then they have to claw back the payment. So that again encourages, and, and sometimes if it's truly a fraudulent provider that sets up camp, bills Medicare, millions and millions of dollars, by the time the government has caught up with them, sometimes they've closed up and moved to the next city. So, um, and again, because no bricks and mortar, it's easier to do in home health. Let me just note the one example we talked about before we started this conversation, and that's the allegations against Dr. Jacques Roy. Uh, these were made in 2012. He was charged with operating a $375 million home health scam in Texas involving upwards of 230 uh, Dallas area home uh, health agencies. He had a money, he had a bank account in the Cayman Islands, and it was alleged that he was actually running a, a basement shop where he had people just signing his name and filling out claims forms just 24 hours a day. Right. So that's the extent to which this goes. Um, so let me just go next to ask, what is CMS doing then? to try to reduce fraudulent billing? Sure. Well, the government has been doing a, a great deal uh, it, legislatively uh, through rulemaking. So from a legislative perspective, the Affordable Care Act um, established something called the face-to-face -face encounter because, the interestingly, over the past 
several years, the percentage of patients who are coming out of a hospital or nursing home setting into home health has been dropping, whereas the percentage of people who are coming to home health directly through the community has been rising and are now, they're, they're the majority of patients. And so there was concern that they may not have seen a physician for a long period of time and the physician is just presented with this form and he, he or she signs it and that's it but maybe is not actively involved in the care. So the Affordable Care Act established something called the face-to-face -face encounter, uh, and CMS promulgated that through rulemaking, and basically a person, a home health agency, has to be able to prove that a person has seen a physician within 90 days prior to or 30 days after the beginning of their initial home health episode. Um, this created a great hue and cry in the industry because the physician was required to write a narrative as to why the person qualified for home health. Uh, and that the home health industry actually sued CMS saying that you didn't give us proper guidance, you didn't execute this properly. And so in this year's rulemaking, in the proposed rule that came out on July 22nd, <clears throat> basically CMS said, we are going to not require the home health agencies to provide us with this information. We are going to revise the existing plan of treatment, add a box, uh, for the physician to put in the date of the face-to-face -face encounter, certify that he or she had that encounter, and then the physician will be responsible for maintaining that documentation, not the home health agency. So they got a bit of a break on that in rulemaking. <clears throat> the other thing the Affordable Care Act did is it established a new provider screening mechanisms, and home health was placed into the highest risk category, meaning that um, People who are on boards of directors of home health agencies now are being subjected to criminal background checks uh, for new agencies, right? So again, trying to create a barrier to entry. The other thing it did is it gave the Secretary of Health and Human Services the authority to implement moratoria on new home health provider numbers in geographic areas where there's been a, you know, unusual utilization of home health. And those moratoria, in fact, the day before yesterday, uh, the secretary announced that uh, they were extending the existing moratoria for another six months. They're in place right now in Dallas, as you mentioned, that has been a, a problematic area before, in Houston, in Miami-Dade, uh, Monroe counties in Florida, Fort Lauderdale, Greater Chicagoland, and Detroit. So, uh, so that, again, trying to keep uh, new providers from coming in. In addition to that, we have an alphabet soup of, uh, of audit services, Max, Rex, ZPix, and Heat. So um, basically, Max are the Medicare administrative contractors. They're the ones who pay the bills for Medicare. Uh, they can do either pre-payments uh, audits or post. Usually it's post, but if they find a provider has historically had difficulty with filing questionable claims, they can do as much of a, as 100% prepayment audit, which as you might imagine is kind of a nasty situation for the provider from a cash flow perspective. There are also bodies called ZPICs or Zone Program Integrity uh, Contractors. They actually look for, they audit claims looking for fraud specifically. Um, and then this fall, we're going to have a recovery audit contractor or a RAC for the first time, focused 100% on home health, hospice, and DME claims. And previously, they just <clears throat> focused on hospitals, correct? Well, previously, they could audit home health claims, but because hospital claims are so much more lucrative and they're paid based on a percentage of what they claw back on behalf of the government, why would they go after a $3,000 home health claim when they can go after a $100,000 short-term inpatient hospital stay with a procedure? So, uh, so that's why the government created a separate rack just for these lower reimbursed categories 
that are having difficulties with waste, fraud, and abuse. The other thing that we have are health enforcement action teams, and that is a collaboration between the Department of Justice, the Office of the Inspector General, and the Internal Revenue Service. And there are health enforcement action teams, again, located in those cities that I mentioned previously that have historically been problematic from a waste, fraud, and abuse perspective, it being Dallas, Miami, Chicago, Detroit, et cetera. And just since we have a moment, let me ask you, so this occurs in the other post-acute provider spaces as well. Yes. So what could you, and particularly hospice, it seems, has been in the, in the uh, news of late. What's going on there? Yes, very sadly, um, hospice is a really, really wonderful Medicare benefit. It's an all-encompassing benefit, and it's meant to provide comprehensive care, services, and support to people have, who have a life expectancy of six months or less if their disease runs its normal trajectory. It also provides support to the family. It also provides uh, you know, grief counseling after the beneficiary dies for the family. Um, it also, in a very unique way, uses volunteer services to really, uh, there's chaplaincy involved. So it's not just the health, the physical health of the person, it's the entire human being. The problem that's happened over the past, I would say, 10 years, hospice first, uh, I believe, came into being in about 1983, I think was when Medicare started paying for it. And at that period of time, primarily the patients had cancer diagnoses. Today, the patients primarily have other kinds of diagnoses that are much harder to predict as far as when the end of life will occur, things like dementia. Uh, and two of the most common codes that have been used for diagnoses are adult failure to thrive and debility unspecified. And those actually are not even appropriate to use as primary diagnoses codes. So uh, people have been admitted to hospice who are not necessarily hospice appropriate. So the average length of stay has been growing over time. The utilization of hospice in nursing facilities and assisted living facilities is ballooning. And there's concern on the part of the government, particularly in nursing facilities, that they may be double paying for the same services. So if a person, say a person is a duly eligible beneficiary who has Medicare and Medicaid, they're in a nursing home under a Medicaid stay, they can receive Medicare hospice services under Medicare Part A. But what the OIG did when they found when they did a study was that actually people who reside in nursing homes receive more home health aid visits through hospice care than people who reside in their, their own personal homes, which completely is counterintuitive. So, so there's a, a focus on hospice that has not been there historically with concern about overutilization of the benefit. Let me ask you about uh, enforcement through whistleblowers. How does that work? These are the so-called quick-tam yes, suits. Yes, yes, exactly. So it, it, usually the government becomes aware of a problem, or oftentimes they do, when an, an employee, a former employee, or a consultant files what's called a key-tam or whistleblower lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And key-tam is, is an abbreviation for a very long Latin saying that means on behalf of king and country. And uh, basically what these individuals do, or groups of individuals, is they file a suit on behalf of the United States of America under seal so that no one but the government knows about the suit. And the government has a period of time to evaluate the evidence and decide whether or not they're going to join in the suit. Most often they do not join in the suit, uh, but when they do, they have a remarkable record of success in either prosecution or in most instances settling. Um, with the the uh, people who have allegedly um, 
been in trouble. We'll just put it that Committed way. Committed improper billing. Exactly, exactly. So, and basically what happens then, if there is a settlement, there can be a criminal trial, there can be a civil trial. Most often they settle and they sign what's called a corporate integrity agreement. Most often they do not admit to any wrongdoing during this specific period of time. Important to note that Corporate integrity agreements only cover behavior in a certain period of time. They don't preclude the government from going back further in history, and they don't preclude the government from looking at future potential bad behavior. But basically, they usually last for five years. The company has to uh, hire an independent review organization. I actually used to do this kind of work when I was with KPMG. And the IRO goes in and audits uh, sampling of claims and also reviews um, teaching, for example, the, the, uh, even the salary structure to make sure that it does not encourage bad behavior, make sure that there's uh, you know, a corporate compliance program that is not only in place, but is actively embedded in the culture of the organization. So, and, and oftentimes the companies come out on the other end just fine. But in addition to having the CIA, they usually typically have to pay very hefty fines. And I'll use, um, <clears throat> not to pick on a Metasys, but a large publicly traded company recently settled for $150 million uh, and now is operating under a corporate integrity agreement uh, for the next five years. So the, the fines are not insubstantial. If they went to trial, they would have been subjected to treble damages for every single claim. In other words, if the government paid $1,000, they would have had to pay 3000 right, in addition to $11,000 uh, in civil monetary penalties per claim. So it can be, I mean, the, the the False Claims Act has teeth. And uh, just a fun fact from a historical perspective, it, the, it was uh, signed into law in 1863 uh, in the height of the Civil War because there were unscrupulous vendors who were providing mules uh, to the Union Army. And when the mules would get to the, to the front lines, they would either be dead or extremely ill and useless. And so that's how the False Claims Act came into being, making it a crime to do that to the United States taxpayers. So under a CIA, you're ostensibly under supervision for a five-year period. Correct. Correct. All right. We have time for one more question, possibly, and that is, from your years of experience working in post-acute, and you're a nurse by training, Yes. what more can be done? How better can, let's just stay with home health, how better can the program be managed, coordinated, I mean, where, where there is for opportunity? Right. I think there's opportunity in, in revising, potentially revising the payment mechanism to make it patient-centered rather than service-centered. Right now, the agencies are reimbursed to a certain extent based on the, the volume of service they provide. So that would be one thing that could happen. But I think probably one of the most effective things we could do is a public awareness campaign. Most Medicare beneficiaries don't understand the home health benefit. Many of them don't even know they have it. Uh, there's no copayment, there's no deductible, so there's no financial uh, concerns, which, you know, is, is good from a patient's perspective. Um, well, one of the arguments was to have a copay, right? and therefore the patient might be more careful when it chooses. But, of course, that has a negative effect. Exactly, well. it could. And, and we don't want to deny people access to care because they're afraid they don't have $150 to, to, to pay, you know, if they need it and they're not poor enough to be duly eligible, uh, that would be uh, really problematic. Mm -hmm. So um, so I think education is key. I think, and especially with the baby boomers coming on board, we want to know the details. We want to manage our own care. We want to uh, understand the rules. We want to understand our benefits. And I think that we would be very, I'm saying we, I'm not a Medicare beneficiary yet. <laughs> not by a long shot, but I am a boomer. So, um, But I really think that a public awareness campaign, what your benefits are, 
Um, I think it's interesting, too, that the Department of Justice uses retired FBI agents to do some of their sting work um, on Medicare fraud and abuse. I'd like to see more of that. My dad was an FBI agent, and I know he would have delighted in doing that after he retired from the Bureau. So those are just some things that I think we could do to make things better. And, and there is a legitimately appropriate uh, upside here, which is you want people to quote-unquote age in place. You want to keep them out of the hospital. So care in their own home is always preferable. I believe so. I really believe so. If they can be safe in their own homes, I don't know too many people who would raise their hands and say, I'd really rather be in an institutional setting where I can't <clears throat> be with my dog or cat or my loved ones and surrounded by familiar things. So anytime someone can be at home, I think it's, it, and they're not exposed to the infections they are in an inpatient setting, all kinds of wonderful reasons that uh, home care is going to be a big part of the future of our healthcare delivery system, I believe, for, for the future. And, and going out here, let me just ask, there was a case just yesterday in the District of Columbia? Yes, unfortunately, this was a Medicaid case, and it's the biggest health care fraud case in the history of the district, and unfortunately involves um, Medicaid home, home care services. So with people buying basically Medicaid numbers and billing for services that aren't being provided. So we'll, we'll see how that unfolds. The OIG just announced that yesterday. Okay, thank you, Cheryl, so much for your time. I'm appreciative. It's a pleasure, David. Thank you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.